Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Singer Marian Anderson was an immense talent, but you don't need to be a lover of opera to appreciate the voice. Anderson singing the spiritual My Lord What a Morning. It's also the title of her memoir published in 1956 after becoming the first African-American singer to perform at the Metropolitan Opera. She faced discrimination in her career. She became a prominent civil rights icon. Today where we live we learn about Anderson's career. Coming up, we talk to Francesca Zambello, Artistic Director of the Washington National Opera at the Kennedy Center. Now, Marian Anderson lived in Danbury, Connecticut for many decades, and her studio is part of the Danbury Museum. Are you a fan of Anderson? Do you live in Western Connecticut and have anecdotes to share about Anderson's time in our state? You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And later in the show, we talk about, about diversity in opera today. Joining us first on Zoom is Bridget Gerton, Executive Director of the Danbury Museum. She's also the Danbury City Historian. Bridget, welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, I mentioned that the Marian Anderson Studio is part of the Danbury Museum today. So can you describe uh, this studio and, and how it came to be part of the museum? Absolutely. Uh, Orpheus Kingfisher, who was Marian Anderson's husband, built her the practice studio behind their home at Marianna Farm in Danbury. And after uh, Marian had passed, uh, it was a joint effort of the city of Danbury, the state of Connecticut, and a lot of very, very uh, concerned citizens to preserve Marian Anderson's studio and to move it uh, from its location at Marianna Farm to the Danbury Museum campus. And so now this charming little building uh, with a cove ceiling sits uh, towards the back of our campus on 43 Main Street. And it is a lovely dark blue color. We just repainted the exterior, uh, one of our many COVID projects here at the museum. And we had the opportunity also during uh, closure, uh, COVID closure to repaint the interior. And so when a visitor enters, there's this beautiful buttercream yellow uh, walls and a bright uh, white cove ceiling, which is uh, curved ceiling. And uh, there are cases of material relating to Marion Anderson's uh, various points of her career, uh, a lovely uh, baby grand piano and big, gorgeous windows uh, for you to look out at the museum garden and uh, to maybe imagine yourself looking out at the gardens at Mariana Farm, its original location. 
It sounds lovely. You mentioned Mariana Farm a couple of times, and so that was her property in Danbury. What brought her to the Hat City? Well, uh, King uh, and Marion had been talking uh, about getting married, and uh, they had been uh, in negotiations, I think, as as you would say. And uh, one of the pieces uh, to the marriage puzzle was finding a place that they could both call home together. And they had this dream of a a farm-like, bucolic setting. And so King started looking. Marion was on tour. Uh, This was the end of the 1930s uh, after her uh, concert uh, in Washington, D.C. So we're talking uh, 1939 into uh, 1940. King is looking all over the Northeast, but he focused on Westchester and then moved a little bit um, into the Connecticut area. And unfortunately, uh, he and Marion discovered that uh, racism and discriminatory practices uh, would be, um, uh, you know, not not compatible with them finding the home that they wanted uh, in the New York area. And so they looked further afield, and, and they found this this lovely property in Danbury, Connecticut. It's on the west side uh, of Danbury, almost at the New York border, and uh, they they loved it. And, and in fact, uh, King loved it first, and he bought it uh, sight on he bought it, but Marion. And had never seen it. Uh, the first time she arrived at uh, the place, uh, he had started converting their Victorian uh, house there, and uh, there was a, a little bit of a mess. <laughs> so she didn't come back again until uh, the house was was in good repair. But uh, they loved the property. They lived there for uh, the entirety of their married lives, and uh, it was everything uh, she hoped it would be. You mentioned King a couple of times. So this is Orpheus uh, Fisher, Orpheus her husband. Fisher, yes. Yes. And and you also said that uh, when they were looking for homes, they weren't welcome in, in Westchester. And so talk about what it was like uh, at that period in Danbury and why they were able to have a home uh, in Danbury, despite the time, despite the discrimination that she uh, and her husband faced. So Danbury has been uh, a, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial community since the mid part of the 1700s. Uh, because our hatting industry took off uh, starting about the 1820s on, uh, we, we created these multi-story, multi-room uh, factories where we were producing millions of hats. Uh, we called ourselves the hat capital of the world. And what that meant was that uh, we needed people. And so if you imagine every major wave of immigration from about 1850 on, a portion of that immigrant wave, which is which is still true for us here in Danbury today, uh, settled and settles here in Danbury. And so by the time uh, Orpheus Kingfisher uh, and uh, Marian Anderson uh, started looking for a place to live and they, you know, came here uh, or or King came here first in the 1940s, it was uh, a very diverse community. And so we have, uh, we spoke many, many languages. Uh, In the early 1900s, we spoke 27 languages by early 1900s. By the 1940s, we're speaking uh, 30 plus languages, uh, just under 40 languages here in Danbury. And so they found this community that was full of culture and full of diverse opinions and uh, diverse uh, opportunities. And I think that was a very comfortable setting, uh, combined, of course, with the bucolic nature of the farm that they purchased. It was exactly what she was looking for. And uh, we are so very lucky that she chose Danbury and that she chose to make friends here. Uh, She helped open and found our Danbury Music Center. Uh, When the Danbury Museum put a brand new building on our campus in the 1960s, Marian Anderson came and sang God Bless America at the opening. Uh, She sang at Danbury High School graduations. She was just truly a member of the community. She didn't hold herself apart. And 
uh, by embracing Danbury and Danbury embracing her, I think uh, she found she found her home. And uh, we are so very lucky uh, that we had her for as long as we did. That's really interesting to hear um, because of um, what an acclaimed singer uh, she was uh, at that time, her career spanning uh, between 1925 and 1965, um, first uh, in Europe and then uh, in the United States, uh, becoming um, uh, very famous. But the fact that she still had a connection to the local community, she just wasn't somebody that showed up here on the weekends. No, uh, in fact, uh, she had really good friends in Danbury, um, and those friends were uh, staunch supporters of her throughout her entire life. And Marion, uh, oftentimes when she retired, she would flip through the Danbury paper. She would uh, talk to her secretary and say, oh, gosh, this person looks interesting, and she'd invite them up for lunch. And so uh, we have all these wonderful you know, stories of Danburyans who had the opportunity to have lunch with Marion and she was very invested in uh, the local youth and uh, making sure that music was accessible to uh, to our local uh, community. And she would invite the Girl Scouts up to go swimming in her pool uh, in the summer. She really was uh, a international star, but at home in Danbury, she was Mrs. Fisher. And she requested that people refer to her that way. And this was, this was the place that uh, she felt most comfortable uh, in her later years, especially. You're hearing Bridget Gerton here on Where We Live, Executive Director of the Danbury Museum and the Danbury City Historian. As we spend our hour learning about Marian Anderson, uh, a worldwide acclaimed uh, singer, uh, she uh, lived in Danbury for 50 years, and we're learning about uh, her impact uh, on our state. You can join us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, she was also became a civil rights uh, icon uh, because of no matter how she um what discrimination she faced, uh, you know, she was able uh, to still have an amazing career. And, uh, you know, you had referenced uh, this, uh, this concert that will be playing a little bit of from the Lincoln Memorial, uh, where it was the outcome of being uh, kept out of a concert hall in Washington, uh, DC. But can you talk about as you as in the city historian uh, perspective, are uh, helping the community, even young people, learn about Marian Anderson and her legacy. What are the things that, that you stress? So Marian Anderson's legacy is varied. We have the musical legacy, we have her impact in the musical world, and we have her impact on the culture of an, an American identity. And so when we discuss Marian, which we do uh, with our local school children on a third grade level, uh, again on the fifth grade level, and uh, hopefully uh, once, once we can get back into the schools post-COVID um, on, on a, the middle school level, um, we really stress that uh, she was both an artist and uh, a person in her own right. So we talk about these two big aspects of her personality. Uh, you know, what she meant to the world as an artist, but what she also meant to the world as, as a human being. And uh, we do focus uh, somewhat on, on the discrimination she faced, but we also focus on the fact that she persevered, that Marian Anderson moved past the obstacles that were in her pathway. And that 
these these two aspects of, of her personality, these two pieces of her life that were, you know, such a such a big piece of, of our American culture and identity. Now, uh, we talk about in ways that we hope uh, make her accessible to uh, the children and to the visitors, uh, the adult visitors who come to the museum. Marion's story is not just a story. You, you know, for us, it's personal here in Danbury, mm-hmm. uh, but it is uh, this wonderful narrative of someone who took all the gifts that she had been given in life and made the most of them and did so despite despite uh, so many people who strove to uh, not make her uh, or, or who, who threw obstacles in her path, I guess is the best way to say that. And uh, her story is, I hope, inspiring for another generation of American citizens, uh, another generation of world citizens and another generation of Danbarians. And I, I hope that she would be proud that the her worldwide legacy is explored, but also uh, the legacy of who she was at home. Uh, we understand that Marion was also an expert seamstress, and some of her clothes yes. are in your collection at the at the Danbury Museum. Again, you're hearing Bridget Gerton, executive director of the Danbury Museum, as we learn more about singer Marion Anderson's life and career. As we head to break, we're going to play a clip from Marion's groundbreaking performance on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This was a free open-air concert scheduled in 1939 after many protested the decision by the daughters of the American American Revolution, or DAR, which had denied Anderson a chance to sing at D.C.'s Constitution Hall because of its white performers-only policy. Among those who protested the decision was First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, who resigned from DAR and then asked her husband, President Roosevelt, to help arrange the concert at Lincoln Memorial. Here is Marian Anderson singing My Country, Tis of Thee. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Marian Anderson was described as having a once in a hundred years voice.
That's Anderson singing Ave Maria on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1952, several years before she'd be invited to sing at the Metropolitan Opera, the first African-American singer to do so. We're learning more about Anderson's career and life. She spent many decades living in Danbury, Connecticut. Uh, Joining us now on Zoom is Francesca Zambello, who's the artistic director of the Washington National Opera at the Kennedy Center. She's also director of the Glimmerglass Festival. Francesca, such a pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you today. You know, listening to her sing brings me to tears. Um, I wanted to talk to you about, uh, you know, Marian Anderson's life and also, you know, your perspective of, of what uh, immense talent she was, Francesca. Well, there's no question she was incredibly unique as an artist. Um, her voice and her singing and her expressiveness uh, separate her from so many other singers. Of course, she was a trailblazer, uh, as you talked about earlier in the program. Um, and what is so important for us in the operatic world is that she was the first African-American to sing on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera in 1955. Um, at the Kennedy Center, where I work, we continue to honor her legacy by we have dedicated a a prize every year in her honor that goes to a emerging African-American performer. Uh, and it's, it's a prize which is, uh, comes with a, a monetary gift, but also a recital at the Kennedy Center. And then like Marian Anderson, a call to really go out and work in the community with young people. Um, and that is our way that we have chosen to honor her legacy, which is so special and so inspirational to so many, so many artists. I mentioned, uh, you know, Marion shot to fame after that 1939 performance at the Lincoln Memorial, uh, but her career was so much more than that one moment. Can you tell us about some of the significant turning points in her life, Francesca? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, it took from 1939 till 1955 to end up at the Met. And that, of course, was a, that was a groundbreaking performance. Um, the fact that an artist of color sang on the stage of the Met, it then opened the door for many important artists to follow after her. And of course, her work was recognized not only on the operatic stage then, but then she really became you know, a goodwill ambassador for the United States. Um, she went on to win the Congressional Gold Medal. And, and then for us at the Kennedy Center, she received the Kennedy Center honor. Uh, in 1978, and then really the highest honor uh, from the government, the National Medal of the Arts, and then eventually a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 1991, which came two years before she passed away. But those are really the highest honors that anyone can receive uh, in the in the classical music field. And she, of course, deserved all of them. But what's so important is that her she serves as a, a true inspiration to many performers in classical music, not only African-American performers, but because of her artistry and the fact that she mixed music with a commitment to raising a social conscience about uh, artists, uh, artists of color. And, and that, I think, is her, is her legacy for us. 
Again, you're hearing Francesca Zambello here on Where We Live, Artistic Director of the Washington National Opera at the Kennedy Center, as we learn more about Marian Anderson's life. You can join us if you have a question. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I had mentioned Francesca, you know, she was seen as a civil rights pioneer. She broke down uh, racial barriers. Uh, you know, she was turned away as a, a young woman from uh, learning at the Philadelphia Music Academy. She'd go on to have an amazing career in Europe, um, you know, ha having connections uh, with people like uh, Sibelius and, and uh, um, the way that she was embraced there and how it took so many years before she um, had that kind of acclaim in this country. Can you talk about that and why that was? Well, uh, I mean, this country, you know, opera has always been seen as an art form for the elite, uh, whereas I think in Europe, it's always been so much more part of the culture. Um, and certainly in France and in Germany, already uh, in the 50s and 60s, many artists of color after the war were performing in the opera houses here. I'm actually speaking to you right now from Vienna, Austria. Um, and when I think that, you know, so many great singers made huge careers on the stage, stages of Europe before coming back and being uh, rightly honored in the States. And she certainly... Uh, like I say, led the way for that. Um, and I think it was really not just singing on the stage of the Met, but also when she sang at uh, JFK's inauguration, that that is what put a Black artist in front of the country uh, in a way that uh, certainly I can imagine the country had never experienced before. Uh, here's author Robert Sims and Lonnie Bunch of the Smithsonian Institute uh, talking about uh, Marian Anderson and how she broke down barriers. In the summer of 1919, Marian Anderson traveled to Chicago for a six-week opera course. She's coming from Philadelphia to Chicago during a time of unrest in the city. What you have is a growing black population, and there's tensions between the black population and the white population. An African-American young man had floated in the lake to the wrong side. They threw a rock and hit him, and he died. There was a race riot. When she sang the crucifixion in the 1950s, you could hear the memories of the South and the riots of 1919. Francesca, did you want to respond to what we just heard? Uh, again, Marian Anderson was a contralto. Uh, when you hear her singing that song, what comes to your mind? I, I think uh, when I hear that voice, you hear an incredibly profound uh, emotional connection to music and text. Uh, and of course, I, I never saw her live, but when I think of the legacy 
that she carried that she gave to the next generation of black artists when we think of you know jesse norman leontine price uh, you can see that they carried forward that incredibly unique commitment to to music and you you can hear it in her singing even if you know nothing about music you you feel this profound depth of feeling which I sometimes think, you know, those things can't be taught. They are, are they are truly innate. And I think that with her, she was just that kind of artist. You know, great artistry often just comes from within. It's it's not something you can learn. And she clearly exhibited that. And what a she was brave. Uh, when I think of her uh, overcoming these incredible obstacles because of a commitment to artistry. I just, it's incredibly inspirational. I wanted to play another clip from this PBS documentary, uh, opera singer Denise Graves speaking about Anderson's range. Let's hear it. Contralto being the lowest possible female voice. She could sing that to break your heart into a million pieces, but she also had a great top. She had a great high C and her voice could live above the staff, meaning uh, in soprano territory. I don't feel that the singing a high C was any trouble at all. To me, it was a lark. One did not confine herself to being either soprano or contralto or anything else, but one was billed as a contralto. In the operatic world, the sopranos always are the leading ladies. I've sung some of Marian Anderson's pieces, and they were out of my tessitura, meaning they were out of my range. And my voice is classified as a higher voice than hers. It's one of the reasons that I believe that Marian Anderson was not classified as a soprano, is because that would mean that she would be the love interest of a white counterpart which was not accepted at all at the time. Mm. Francesca, did you want to respond to what Denise Graves shared and about her yes. observation? Yes, uh, well, Denise, Denise Graves I know well. Uh, she is a remarkable artist of this generation. Um, and uh, interestingly, she is uh, considered a mezzo-soprano. She sings Carmen, she sings Delilah. And I think what she said about Marian Anderson, Marian Anderson broke in as a contralto, and, con- and a contralto is not conventionally the love interest the way a soprano is. I think it's it's absolutely true what Denise said, and, and it's amazing that Marian Anderson had a range of three octaves and maybe more. Uh, it, it, it would have been much less threatening to a white audience to see her in the roles that she sang. Uh, Ulrika, Azucena, these tend to be the nemesis characters or the outsider characters. Whereas the soprano uh, characters, you know, Gilda, Violetta, et cetera, I think would have created a threat. This, And I think it's interesting. We've seen this with other artists of color that came in the generation right after Marian Anderson. You didn't see black tenors in leading roles until George Shirley. You saw them as as the base characters, the char- the the devils, uh, the evil characters, and I and I think it was really not until the 1980s where there was truly an acceptance of the black soprano uh, and the black tenor in leading roles on the stage of the major opera houses in the United States. 
Mm. Uh, like many uh, places in our country, uh, even opera is struggling with issues of, of representation. Coming up, we're going to be talking more about diversity in opera. I had mentioned that you're also artistic director of the Glimmerglass Festival. So how are you working uh, to improve representation, uh, Francesca? Well, uh, I've been the general director there for 12 years and at the Kennedy Center for 10 years. And I made a commitment in both jobs when I started that at least a third to a half of our casting uh, in all operas and in our training programs would be diverse artists. And we have been held true to that principle uh, for more than a decade in both companies. Uh, we actually have led the way in, there's a service organization called Opera America, where we, uh, the Washington National Opera and the Glimmerglass Festival are ranked number one and number two for the highest level of diversity in casting. And that has been very important to me, not just, um, uh, not just presenting operas that have, uh, let's say a black theme, although we did commission an opera Nate, called Blue, two years ago at Glimmerglass, which uh, preceded the events of George Floyd that was about uh, the murder of a young black man whose father was a police officer. Um, it's, I just think to me, it's about representation and it doesn't just have to be subject matter that addresses racial issues. You need to cast artists, diverse artists in every single role, you know, Don Giovanni to, to Gilda, everything. And that is what I have worked on uh, as an administrator and as an artistic leader. And th that's the only way it's going to happen. You know, if you want, if you want everybody to come to an opera house, you have to have everybody on the stage. It's pretty much as simple as that, I think. What about offstage? I was looking at this, again, this article from the Times in 2020. There was this panel uh, discussion with uh, uh, leading uh, talent uh, um, in the opera world, uh, black men and women talking about how blackness in opera more or less ends on stage. So more work needing to be done uh, to change uh, opera or to have more representation offstage. Uh, Francesca, what do you think about that? I, I think it's absolutely true, and uh, I know many of those artists who have said that, and I personally have worked to make sure we have a large training program for administrators and production people at Glimmerglass, and we have worked very hard to create uh, opportunities for young people to come into the field. And that generally means about making sure that there's pay equity for them, um, just you know education equity and so that's something that i have been committed to and have been working on for most of my career uh and th that is absolutely a problem i would say in our industry that there is not enough representation in leadership positions uh which are of course administrative also creative leadership directors conductors etc um, and it's changing. It's just changing slowly, the same way it changed slowly for women in the field, for women in leadership positions. Again, you're hearing Francesca Zambello here on Where We Live, Artistic Director of the Washington National Opera. As we learn more about Marian Anderson's life, again, she spent many years living in our state in Danbury, Connecticut. I just wanted to take a quick call. Elliot's calling in from Bridgewater. Elliot, go ahead. Yes, uh uh, I was a second grade teacher at Barry School, and uh, there was a newspaper article in the Danbury News Times about the possibility 
that Mary Anderson's studio on Joe's Hills Road was going to be demolished because the property was being sold. And uh, I told my class about it in our circle event, and uh, they came up with an idea that maybe we should collect some money and donate it to the foundation through the NAACP and an attorney. So the kids, lo and behold, and myself, I was really surprised. They went around to their grandmothers and grandfathers and people in their neighborhood, and they came in with $250. So uh, we donated the money to the cause, and then they contacted us, and they, uh, the, the two people who were involved with it came down to my classroom, my second-grade classroom in Barry School, and uh, spoke to the children about Marion Anderson, and they had a DVD, and the youngsters listened to some of her operas. Uh, and, uh, and also, I had a friend who was a third-grade teacher at Johnson School. Her name was Ella Roundtree. She was also a council person in Danbury, and she was a very, very good friend of Marion Anderson, and they shared the same birthday. And Marion and uh, Ella uh, used to go together to uh, Jackie Robinson's house annually for a summer picnic uh, down in Stamford, Connecticut. And uh, so that, that's, that was uh, my experience with Marion Anderson with, with my second grade class in, in Bethel Public Schools. Oh, well, lovely story. Thank you, Elliot, for calling in to share that. Uh, Bridget Gerton is still with us uh, from the Danbury Museum. Bridget, did you want to respond to what Elliot shared? I think one of the greatest uh, things that happened when Marian Anderson's studio was threatened was how many people uh, came out, uh, school children, adults, different groups uh, across uh, so many uh, different levels to make sure that the studio was preserved and saved. And uh, it was it was truly a community-wide, uh, statewide effort to make that happen. And I'm, I'm, I'm so thrilled to hear that story. Uh, I think it's absolutely charming. It's one uh, that I hadn't heard, and I will absolutely be uh, telling that story again, because I really just think it, it illustrates the point that uh, people in town and in our, our community loved, honored, uh, respected uh, Marion uh, for what she had done in her career, but also uh, who she was as a, as a human being and how she had, uh, you know, focused uh, her attentions in ways to make life better for musicians, uh, for people uh, from all over. And uh, thank you uh, for letting me comment. Again, you're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I want to thank Francesca Zambello for joining us, the artistic director of the Washington National Opera, joining us from Vienna. She had to get back to rehearsal, but we appreciate her perspective today in this conversation. And you just heard Bridget Gerton from the Danbury Museum. As we head to break, here's Marian Anderson singing at a concert for Presidents John F. Kennedy and Dwight Eisenhower in 1962. <laughs>
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about acclaimed African-American singer, Marian Anderson, who lived in Danbury for many years. She was also a civil rights icon and is the focus of an upcoming PBS documentary called Marian Anderson, The Whole World in Her Hands, premiering next month. Joining us now on Zoom is Alan Mann, who's artistic director of the Opera Theater of Connecticut. Alan, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you, Lucy. So we've talked about Marion's career uh, with a, a few guests now. I'm just wondering if you can tell us more about her time in Europe and, and how it was much smoother than uh, what she experienced in the United States. It was indeed, and it still is very much today. In Europe, the concept of the color bars, although there were still racism and, and ethnic problems, aren't you know nowhere near the historic size that it was here in the United States. So even from the early 20s, when you have Josephine Baker and so on in Europe, uh, African-Americans, people of color were much more uh, accepted in roles. And as Francesca was saying, not just the side roles as, as leading roles. And that's very important. Um, and it's still true today that the European path is in many ways easier for singers of color to gain a reputation before they're actually hired in the United States. I think of Pretty Yende uh, from South Africa, who, you know, developed quite a career in Europe before finally being brought over here in uh, to sing in the United States. And the same thing happened with other singers, including uh, Leontine Price, that they weren't really accepted here in the States as lead singers, they would go to Europe, they would get the repertoire, they would learn the roles, they would get great reviews. And finally, someone in the United States would have to acquiesce and bring them in in a major hall. And it's interesting that Marian Anderson broke in at the Met with Ulrika in Balo and Mascara. But that was the only role she ever sang at the Met. They never hired her back. Mm. Yeah, that's really troubling uh, to hear. And even talking about uh, singers of color today, uh, Alan, as you mentioned, uh, the path smoother for them in Europe. Uh, from your perspective, uh, I had touched on this with Francesca. When we think about diversity in opera today, uh, tell us about um, some of uh, the, uh, pro the um, some of the progress, but also um, as we had discussed with Francesca, you know, even off stage, uh, how there needs to be more representation. On stage, it's slowly but surely developing. A lot of that has to do, though, with the, uh, in a sense, the farm teams that the young singers come up through. When young singers in high school and in college, uh, any young singer, and they're expressing an interest in going into a professional career as a singer, they don't always get guided into opera. They will get shifted to music theater. They'll get shifted to choral singing. Uh, and so there isn't the, the, the numbers of young artists coming up who want to be opera singers in the United States. Now it's changing. We've been doing this in Connecticut, running, you know, uh, casting for 40 years now. And it really has changed significantly in that time. But for the hundreds and hundreds of singers who come out of college or a conservatory uh, striving for a career in opera, 
only a very small percentage make it up to the, the top level. Many of them uh, do sing around the country and have good careers, but they have to become teachers. They have to work at a university to actually pay the bills. And as for offstage, you know, an opera has a hundred singers they'll be or artists they'll be chorus members they'll be dancers orchestra lead singers all of that there's one choreographer one staging director one conductor and that you know just again reduces the chances of of being successful uh, up in a professional career I mentioned your artistic director of the Opera Theatre of Connecticut. So tell us about the work uh, that you and your team have been doing. I understand you have several uh, singers of color as part of your organization. And Correct. And we always have. Our very first opera was uh, Madame of Butterfly way back in the 80s at the in the other century. Um, and the two Americans in that, Pinkerton and Sharpless, we cast as African-Americans. Um, so even right from our very, um, very, very beginning, we have always tried to incorporate as many singers of color as possible. And going back to what Francesca was saying, regardless of the role. So it was not unusual to have uh, the parents of uh, a, a white singer be African-American or, uh, or people of color one way or another. We've been very, um, the term used to be uh, possibly still inappropriate, colorblind, but the idea was that if you sang properly for the role and we thought you had a great vocal blend with everyone else, that's what was important to us. And we never once had any comments from the audience about that. And I think that's very important. When I was in Mississippi and I was doing the same because I was the general director and artistic director of Mississippi Opera, it was not the same when I started to bring African-American singers onto the stage in roles other than chorus. Mm, that, well, I was curious about how the patrons respond. Uh, uh, wonder, you know, what do they want to see, Alan? It sounds like uh, you said in, in Connecticut, you're based in, in Clinton, uh, that the audience appreciates uh, these uh, various uh, roles and people in them. Yes, absolutely. And um, I, I mean, our audience is statewide and even from, you know, other states. And I, it's a change, I think, in uh, philosophy over the years. And it's also uh, where where you are. Uh, as um, as uh, Bridget was talking about, Connecticut has a, a pretty amazing history when it comes to diversity and uh, you know, the integration and acceptance of people of different races and colors. And so the audience here uh, was very receptive to that. And in fact, they uh, liked it a lot. They helped us along the way. We got recommendations. And it's by putting people of color in roles on the stage, they could then go on to other careers, because uh, other roles or other companies, because you have to have that on your resume. It's very hard to be a young artist anyway and to not have a role on your resume to then get accepted and hired by another company. But as an example, in 1995, we uh, there was a young black singer in Connecticut 
And we gave him his professional role debut as Parpignol in our uh, uh, production of Lab OM. He went on to have a singing career. He actually won the Marian Anderson Award. And now he is not only the uh, one of the teachers in the Yale Music Department, but he's also their director of equity, belonging, and student life. So a lot of that has to do with giving young artists the opportunity to, to, to get on stage, to be seen, to develop the skills that they need to be professional singers, and then watching them move on to, to other areas. You're hearing Alan Mann here on Where We Live, Artistic Director of the Opera Theater of Connecticut. Uh, Alan, we've been talking about Marian Anderson, her legacy, the power of her voice. I'm wondering if, if you have any anecdotes as you listen uh, to Marian and your love of opera. A lot of what, again, everybody touched on is you can have people who have wonderful, wonderful voices. And the same thing with, you know, violinists or anything where they're wonderfully skillful, but there doesn't seem to be behind it the emotional context of what is going on. And that is uh, vital. And I think that one of the things that singers like uh, Marian Anderson, Leontine Price, George Shirley, and then hundreds of others who are the lead singers, Placido Domingo, they bring deep emotion, uh, they can touch chords in everybody through the music beyond just the uh, enjoyment of the harmonic structure of, of what is going on. And when you listen to Marian Anderson sing various pieces, you, you have an, an understanding that she is carrying on her shoulders generations of, uh, of other people that she is trying to uh, you know, bring through to the audience for their appreciation. Mm. We just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, Bridget Gerton is still with us, Executive Director of the Danbury Museum and Danbury City Historian. Uh, Bridget, can you tell us briefly, uh, as we remark and talk about Marion's legacy, there are efforts in Danbury to also create a mural of, of Marion? Yes, uh, the mural, uh, which is funded uh, by our local savings bank of Danbury, which is tremendous, is uh, going to be installed this spring. And uh, it's just, you know, one more effort on the part of uh, the Danbury community to recognize Marion in a very public way. Uh, we, we have visitors and tourists who come, you know, regularly to the Danbury Museum to visit the studio. But having a big, beautiful mural designed and publicly accessible visually uh, every single day at, at any hour of the day right on our main street uh, is, is really, I think, a real gift uh, to the community. And it puts Marion uh, in the forefront of everyone's thoughts and putting her puts her legacy and I think it serves as just another point of visual inspiration uh, in Danbury and uh, couldn't be prouder that that Savings Bank and uh, the mayor's office and uh, our Danbury community is, is involved and invested in that project. And an artist has been selected. The work will begin soon. Yes, uh, the artist was selected and uh, work starts uh, this spring as soon as as soon as the temperatures are right. So let's all pray for a couple weeks of, of good weather and uh, solidly sunny skies and uh, we can uh, get started on that. So visitors to Danbury will be able to see that uh, beautiful project completed uh, by this summer. And so when they visit the Danbury Museum and visit the Anderson Studio, uh, they can also see the beautiful mural downtown.
Well, it's been a pleasure to hear from our guests today. Bridget Gerton, again, Executive Director of the Danbury Museum. Alan Mann from Opera Theater of Connecticut, also here. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Sujata Srinivasan. Special thanks to Eugene Amatruda and Katie Tolarski. We'll be back tomorrow.